0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Russia's four-yearly military exercises involve, well, it's hard to say how many soldiers are there. It's serious muscle flexing in Belarus, designed to show how close the two countries have become. And unsurprisingly, it's got the neighbors nervous. Probably no figure in Italian history has left so deep a mark as Dante Alighieri. On the 700th anniversary of his death, we look at his masterwork, the Divine Comedy, and the lessons that it still holds. First up, though... Today, voters in California have a big choice to make. Free whether to recall Governor Gavin Newsom or to leave him in post. California is one of 19 states that permit a vote to remove officials if a petition gets enough signatures. It's a potent political mechanism, and one that it seems clear can be exploited.
2: With all the progress we've made to
1: define ourselves, not by our differences, but the things that bind us together to lead the
2: nation in a series of issues. All of that is at risk if we don't turn out and vote no on this recall tomorrow.
1: Last night, President Joe Biden made clear it's more than just a state-level concern. California, I mean this is silly. The eyes of the nation are on you. I'm not joking. You've got to vote no on the recall. Keep
2: Gavin as governor. The rest of America is counting on you, and so am I. God bless you all.
1: Other leading Democrats have also urged people to turn out.
0: So this election, guys, it's not a one-off. You support Governor Newsom. All you have to do is vote no on the
1: Republican Protect California by voting no on the Republican recall. Mr. Newsom will probably keep his job, As of now, The Economist's polling average puts his voter support at 59%. But in such a high-stakes election, that's not a comfortable margin.
2: California is the most populous democratic state in America. It's also one of the largest. It has the fifth largest economy in the world. A GDP that's larger than the United Kingdom's. There's also just the sheer power of the office. The governor of California can appoint judges, heads of departments, issue executive orders, veto line items in the budget.
1: Alexandra Sewage-Bass is a senior correspondent for The Economist.
2: And then there's, of course, the national consequences where Dianne Feinstein, a U.S. senator from California, is 88. California's governor would appoint her successor should she retire. This is only the second time a recall election for governor has been on the ballot in California. The last time it worked, in 2003, Gray Davis, who was under fire for badly handling an electricity crisis and other problems, he was replaced with a film star Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2003.
1: So how is Mr. Newsom doing in the job?
2: The recall is a pretty stunning reversal for a man who was elected in 2018 with 62 percent of the vote. It's the largest share of vote that any Democratic candidate has ever gotten for governor in California. Gavin Newsom was a tremendously bright star of the Democratic Party. Some talked about his potential to run for president. He has really spearheaded issues of child care, gay marriage and the climate And his supporters really feel like he has pushed forward the Democratic agenda, especially during the Trump presidency. It's worth noting that the attempts to recall Gavin Newsom started just a few months after he took office. And there were five recall attempts before the sixth one, this one that we're seeing, took. And so COVID really gave a lot of fuel to people's gripes about the state's government and this governor specifically. I think it's unlikely we'd see this recall were COVID not in play. How so? You saw a lot of frustration around business restrictions, the inability of schools to reopen in certain areas. Of course, some of this is Governor Newsom's fault, and some of it isn't, but he made mistakes. One was last autumn, while he was urging people to stay home for the holidays on Nazi friends and family He was spotted at French Laundry, a very glamorous, expensive restaurant in Napa Valley, eating with friends, unmasked, indoors. And that gave a lot of fuel for his critics, who have labeled him as being totally out of touch with average Californians and their struggles. It's looking likely that Governor Newsom will retain his position, but that is not guaranteed.
1: And who is he actually up against on this ballot?
2: There are more than 40 candidates. Most of them are Republicans and no one with the name recognition of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The frontrunner, Larry Elder, is an African-American shock jock. He's dubbed himself the sage from South Central Los Angeles. And my
1: father said about Democrats, Democrats want to give you something for nothing. And when you try to get something for nothing, you almost always end up getting nothing for something.
2: And he likes to provoke. He's suggested, for example, that it's the descendant of slave owners rather than slaves who should be owed reparations. With our welfare state, we've incentivized women to marry the government and we've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. He is about as un-Californian as you can get. He wants to cut Medicaid. He opposes gun control. He's been critical of climate change and... I think it would be very surprising to Californians if that is who assumed the mantle of leadership for this very progressive state. But again, it's not out of the question. He's pulling at 26 percent ahead of everyone else. But in fact, with only 26 percent of the vote, Larry Elder could still manage to become governor.
1: Wait, how does that work?
2: Well, the ballot asks two questions. The first is, should the governor be recalled? The second question is, if so, who should be the new governor? So there's a scenario in which Governor Newsom could win 49% of the vote to the first question, basically 49% of voters supporting him and opposing the recall, but then he could be replaced by someone with a far smaller share of support. If this scenario happened, I think it will raise a lot of questions about whether the recall is in fact a tool to express Democratic will, or in fact it's subverting the Democratic will and being abused.
1: So Mr. Newsom has to get a majority to stay, but if he doesn't, his replacement only has to come first out of more than 40. And you say that Republicans have been trying to get a recall on the ballot. Uh, Well, this is the 6th now. It looks a bit conniving, no? No.
2: Republicans have not won a state-level office in California since 2006. And there is a sense from recall watchers that this is the only way that Republicans could potentially win the governorship in California. Democrats now outnumber Republicans by nearly two to one. And so recall attempts are potentially their path to power. The timing of this one is very odd because The office is actually up for election next year. So whoever wins in this recall election will still have to campaign again next year.
1: But what about the the mechanism itself? Does Does it serve democracy in the way that it's being used?
2: Well, recalls were first embraced at the start of the 20th century as a way for people to express their will and go around big business, which had really captured the legislatures in various states. But now there's a question about whether a populist tool is actually being used to subvert and undermine the democratic will instead of help achieve it. Recalls have been controversial throughout their history. In the 1780s, Alexander Hamilton decried the state of vassalage and dependence that a senator would feel if a state's legislature could recall him. But it is worth flagging that recalls are unlikely to go away. So far this year, in the first nine months of 2021, we've seen 500 attempts to recall public officials in America. That's 15 percent more than the full year 2019. And a lot of those are happening not at the state level, but at the local level. There's 180 attempts right now targeting school board officials. That's triple the number in 2019. It's a tool that does cost money. In California's case, this recall is going to cost $276 million in taxpayer money to print Tony Atkins, the president of California's Senate, who I spoke with, said that the recall is ultimately just a distraction for the governor, who should be spending his time on a lot of the pressing issues facing California, such as drought, fire, the pandemic, affordable housing, issues with unemployment checks, schools restarting. And so regardless of what happens today with the recall vote, it's likely that California's politicians are going to tinker with how recalls are conducted in the future.
1: Alexandra, thank you very much for joining.
2: Us. Thank you, Jason.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: In September of 1981, the Soviet Union conducted its largest ever military exercises. Zapad means West in Russian, and Zapad 81 was a Cold War show of power on the Western front of the Soviet Union's satellite states. As many as 150,000 troops took part. Now, 40 years later, Russia may well be setting another record. (laughs) Zapad 21 started four days ago and finishes this week. Depending on which numbers you work from, it might involve as many as 200,000 troops, mostly from Russia and Belarus. This spectacle must walk a careful balance. It's supposed to reassure Russia's allies and awe its enemies, while neatly avoiding the provocation of wary NATO countries.
3: Whether Zapad 21 will actually match the spectacle of the 1981 version isn't entirely clear.
1: Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor.
3: That's because Russia is almost amusingly caught between advertising this exaggerated 200,000 strong figure for the exercise to show how powerful it is, and hoping that Western media, like us, will report it, and realizing that it has diplomatic reasons to furiously play down the size of the exercise at the same time. What are the diplomatic reasons? The Soviet Union agreed with a lot of Western countries back in 1990 in something called the Vienna Document, that exercises with more than 9,000 troops would have notification. You'd have to give advance notice of the exercise. And if you're over 13,000, you also have to open them up to foreign observers so that people can go and watch what you're doing. And so in recent years, Russia has avoided that by saying, hey, you see that exercise over there that looks like it's 100,000 people? It isn't really. It's actually ten different exercises of ten thousand people. So, for example, this time round, Belarus, which is one of the co-hosts of the exercise, it's a joint exercise between Russia and Belarus. It says it's going to host twelve thousand eight hundred troops, conveniently short of the thirteen thousand figure. And Russia says it'll have you know somewhere just above six thousand. Now, the true number of people who will be at Zapad twenty one is probably somewhere between that absurdly inflated figure and the absurdly small
1: ones that Russia and Belarus are reporting. What's the purpose of of running these exercises then at at any size?
3: These are routine exercises in some ways. ZAPAD is held every four years. It's quadrennial. It's part of an exercise series that rotates among different parts of Russia. But this year, there is a kind of added political resonance to the exercise, and that's to demonstrate closeness with Belarus. Last year, Alexander Lukashenko, Belarus's dictator, lost an election and he clung to power. He cracked down very violently on protests, and he moved closer to the Kremlin for diplomatic protection. We're seeing a real tightening of ties between these two countries, and the exercise is an obvious military manifestation of that.
1: And so what exactly do the exercises entail?
3: Well, the premise is a a sort of imagined war scenario in which Russia and Belarus are battling fictional countries. They obviously resemble Poland, Lithuania, and a bunch of other NATO adversaries of Russia. And the premise of the exercise is that these aggressors have been encouraging illegal armed bands, separatist groups, terrorists inside Belarus, and they ultimately invade Belarus. Russia and Belarus then launch a daring counter-offensive to liberate Belarus from these terrible invaders. Now, anyone who's been following Russian strategic thinking will realize this echoes long-standing Russian fears. They're very afraid that Western countries are going to be backing what they call color revolutions, either inside Russia or inside the territory of its allies. And the recent upheaval in Belarus, the protests against Lukashenko, these are taken to be proof of NATO Western malfeasance against Russia. So these exercises are a clear signal to the West, and a clear sign that Russia is willing to defend Belarus. The exercises this time round, compared to previous ZAPAD exercises, are going to involve Russian troops much further West, much closer to the Polish border than in the past, in fact.
1: And how is Poland responding to that?
3: Well, it's understandably jittery. In the last few months, Belarus has been pushing refugees and migrants over the border into Lithuania and into Poland. And Earlier this month, the Polish government declared a state of emergency, both in response to that refugee surge but also in response to the exercises. America, NATO as an organization, Poland, they've all expressed varying degrees of concern about the exercise. Of course, from Russia's perspective, they would point to NATO exercises over the recent years, which haven't been as big, but America has been flying nuclear-capable bombers fairly close to Russian territory. NATO has also been conducting some very ambitious exercises. And so it's clear that both sides are ramping up this kind of military activity.
1: So the real purpose here is more uh, a matter of posturing then?
3: It isn't just posturing. You know, exercises on this scale are partly about testing your military capabilities and testing your alliances and your partnerships. How easily can you move your tanks thousands of kilometers by rail? How easily are you compatible with your allies from Belarus? Are your radios on the same frequency? Is your ammunition compatible? Exercises have a genuine military function of sort of ironing out those kinks But I think it is clear posturing is a large part of it. We last talked about this, I think, in April, Jason. Russia's armed forces have undergone a pretty dramatic transformation over the last 15 years. You know, they've had a lot of money pumped into them. They're smaller, they're leaner, but they're much more lethal. And Russia is very, very keen to show off that
1: progress to the West. So this really is then a serious muscle flexing, a a demonstration that Russia would more than hold its own in, in a real conflict. I mean, how real is the risk of a real conflict?
3: I don't think either NATO or Russia are itching for a big fight. But I think it is worth noting that ZAPAD is occurring amid a reasonably tense time in Europe. Belarus is very angry with European countries, for the fact that they've sanctioned the regime, they've condemned it. And European countries are very angry at Belarus for seeming to foment a refugee migrant crisis on their borders. And when you mix all of that with tens of thousands of troops, perhaps 100,000 troops launching missiles, moving tanks, testing air defense systems, I think that's a pretty combustible mix. And I think we have to be on the guard for accidental flare-ups. And the fact that Russia doesn't invite observers in, that it doesn't give notification for these exercises, isn't exactly a recipe for a lot of trust.
1: Shashank, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
4: Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarrita There is scarcely an Italian who cannot recite the opening lines to Dante's The Divine Comedy She describes being in the middle of his life and finding himself in a dark wood losing his way
1: John Hooper is The Economist's Italy and Vatican correspondent.
4: Today marks the 700th anniversary of the death of Dante. Yet after all that time, his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy, still resonates. For Italians, Dante is unsurpassed. He is the sommo poeta, the supreme poet. But this is somewhat ironic because he was exiled by his fellow Florentines, had his possessions confiscated and was sentenced to death, no less, on trumped-up charges. The man himself was something of a grouchy moralist, certainly no liberal even by the standards of his own time, He wrote a number of works, treatises on politics and language, but it's the divine comedy, the chronicle of his imaginary journey through the afterlife that is his masterpiece. The Divine Comedy splits into three parts, and the first part, is his journey through the inferno, through hell. A lot of people never get beyond the macabre thrills that the poet delivers. Gluttons, for example, get off relatively lightly. They lie in freezing rain. Warmongers flounder in boiling blood and flatterers wallow in excrement. Those who do get beyond the Inferno find some of Dante's most lyrical verse in his purgatory, Purgatorio. One of the most quoted passages is the greeting that he receives from his friend Casella in the second section or canto, as once I loved you in my mortal flesh, without it now I love you still. But it's the least read of the three books, Paradiso, that makes sense of the other two. It shows that Dante perhaps was not just a poet of crisis, a man who reflected in his verse the terrible splitting of his life in two before and after his exile from his beloved Florence, but also a poet of hope because the divine comedy ends on a very, very pronounced up note with the poet coming into the presence of God and finding joy. Dante is seen by many Italians, rightly or wrongly, as the father of the nation. And what is certainly true is that he gave them the basis for a common language many hundreds of years before they were united politically. What he offers in the Divine Comedy is a lesson that arguably a lot of people, including Italians, have been reluctant to learn, which is that material things are not of the importance that we attribute to them and that there is a spiritual life on which we should be focused. It is a journey, if you like, the divine comedy of the life of the spirit. I wonder whether that doesn't give it a new appeal in this bruised world that has in such a short space of time seen a financial crisis a recession now a pandemic and the prospect of the cataclysm that global warming could bring perhaps this is a time on which not just the readers of dante but others may find themselves wanting to reflect on that life of the spirit